Do please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And please follow along as I read verses 13 through 29. Please listen to these words. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does, not, who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that the people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I have said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning again. It is uh, my privilege and joy to present the word of our God this morning, his inspired text, to encourage us, to humble us, to feed us. It is a work of his wonderful spirit. That's why we need to pray. So let's begin with a word of prayer. O God, most high, most glorious, the thought of you, when we consider you and your works, it cheers us, Lord. We toil throughout the week, Lord. We, we work, we are troubled and weary and distressed, but you are at perfect peace always. Your designs cause us, Lord, to turn to you, to need you. This world is a crooked place, and we feel it, Lord. But by your sovereign hand, we have a God who is in control, who is never surprised about the future, but in fact is the author and perfecter in the worker of all things for your glory and for our good. I pray that we can come to believe that, understand it deeply, and it be a source of joy in the times of prosperity of our lives and in the times of adversity, Lord. Help us in this moment, Lord, to be near to you, our great shepherd. Help us to hear your voice and know its tones, Lord and to follow its call through this sermon. Keep us from deception, Lord, by causing us to abide in truth. 
And we pray that, and thank you that your presence alone can redeem us, Lord. You can make us happy and strong and worshipful, Lord, as we abide in you. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we have a doozy of a passage this morning, and it has been my joy over the past week to explore the depths of what the writer of Ecclesiastes has to say to us this morning. The author, we believe, he addresses himself as the preacher. You can actually turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We'll we'll look there before we get to chapter 7. We believe the preacher to be Solomon, the son of David, and he's taking us on his life's journey of understanding what this life is all about. Thus far in the book, there have been many encouraging words, some hard sayings for sure, but one thing that we can all agree on is that Solomon, this author, is desperately and earnestly seeking out the meaning of all things under the sun, and he's keeping it real with us. I love the honesty of Solomon in this book. We're told he is the wisest man who has ever lived, so it would be wise of us to pay attention to his words. He is clearly weary in this expedition of understanding, and he is unhappy about the brokenness of things. Let's look at chapter 1 to begin with, verses 12 through 15. I, the preacher have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I've applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is is an, an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is havel and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Here I believe Solomon puts his finger on the reality of things under the sun, church, and that is all things are crooked. One doesn't need to be wise to know that much. It's something every human can agree with. The world is not perfect, and it bothers us down to our core, but then Solomon, taking that reality that we all can agree upon, takes a stake and drives it deeper into that core and says, yes, the world is broken. It is crooked, and you can't fix it. You can't make what is crooked straight. And from that point forward in the book, Solomon has now set a standard of his pursuit, and it's not how to make the world straight, but it's how to live a meaningful life within a crooked world. Are you following? And thus far, it seems that the thing that Solomon holds up for us as meaning in this crooked world is wisdom. Wisdom is good for making life meaningful under the sun. For example, last Sunday in the first half of chapter 7, Pastor Ryan took us through verses 1 through 12. And in those 12 verses, we hear the word wise or wisdom seven times. So could wisdom then be the answer to life's deepest quandaries? Now, if you were expecting the rest of the book to go this way, that wisdom is that answer to one's life, uh, best life now, as you could say, then Solomon and I are here to immediately pivot that notion. I'm sorry to say, because as great as wisdom is, it is not the ultimate fixer under the sun. What we will find in our passage today is that wisdom has its place, but to live a life of understanding, one that will lead to joy, a life that will lead to meaning in hard times, is to, and pay attention, it's to keep God's providential hand his mysterious work as a true foundation from which we build wisdom upon. That to say, our main point this morning is this. When we consider the work of God, then we see the purpose of a crooked world. When we consider the work of God, then we understand the purpose of this crooked world. Isn't that a sweet idea, church? Isn't it somewhat relieving to maintain these two ideas? That the world truly is crooked, we feel it. 
It feels wrong. We all feel pain and suffering at different points. While at the same time, there's a purpose for our suffering. Now, I propose a question for you as we begin our text this morning. Dear church, if you had the power to make straight this crooked world, or let's make it more personal, if you had the power to make straight your crooked life, and I'll explain what I mean by crooked life in more detail soon, if you had that power, would you do it? It seems like an obvious question at first, right? I know how I had answered that question at the beginning of this week, and I want you to pause before you completely answer that question. Let's hear what the preacher has to say, starting in verses 13, where we derive our main point. So let's reread verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? We begin on a good foot. Consider the work of God. Is there any better work, church, that we can do this side of heaven and then into eternity to consider the work of our sovereign, perfect, and good God? To use the minds that he fashioned by his creative word to think of him? To think about what he has done in this world? With the psalmist in 107.43, we declare together and agree, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let us consider the love of the Lord. And that word consider, that first word we read, it literally means to see. Not so much ponder, but to literally see. Slow down. Stop. Look around. See what the hand of God has done. And what he has done, he has done. And we cannot change it. And what we come to understand next is that God is truly sovereign in all of his working. We read, who can make straight what he has made crooked? This should take you back to thoughts of chapter 1 that we opened up with when Solomon stated what is crooked cannot be made straight. But then he takes it another step. He goes a little bit more deep. He says that with, without exception, without mistake, without misunderstanding, that the crookedness is the work of God. Hmm. For he is sovereign over this creation. What does this do to your heart when you read this? What are you thinking now as I'm saying it? Do you feel squeamish? Do you feel uncomfortable? Does the thought that God's will playing any role in your suffering at all make you cringe? Or can you say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is his sovereign work. Who was a better example of consider the work of the Lord than our forefather, Job. Job, we are told in Job chapter 1, verse 1, was a man who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. What an example of wisdom for sure, church. Yet God allowed the hardest things to befall this man as any man could handle. He was rich in the land, and yet it was taken from him. His home and property was destroyed. His children, his very own children, died. His health, even his own health, was stripped from him. And his wife, maybe his last place of solace and comfort at that moment, gives him this advice. Curse God and then die. That might be a nod to suicide. And even still, this man responds with wisdom and says with surprising insight and surprising faith, you speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not also receive evil? And we're told in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Let's continue in verse 14 as we unfold this mystery. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. 
God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So we can be sure that there will be days of prosperity and days of adversity, but both are the work of God in our lives. In the days of prosperity, church, be joyful. Enjoy the season of prosperity because it is a good gift from God. One of the the great themes of the book of Ecclesiastes is this, the enjoyment of God's good gifts. I've loved that in this sermon series so far. I think of uh, the sermons uh, on chapter 3 when we read and Ryan preached to us that God has made everything beautiful in its own time. Or in chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, Solomon says, I perceive that there is nothing, be- excuse me, nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. We see God's sovereign hand at work in giving good gifts here. We're told to laugh, love, celebrate, make friends, fill the earth. For these are gifts from God to his creation. And in those seasons of prosperity, continue to pursue the Lord joyfully in prayer and worship. Love him with all your mind, soul, heart, and strength. But there will be days of adversity. And he tells us to consider. And here's that word again, consider. Again, we are told to face the truth that as much in the days of prosperity are a divine appointment from God, the days of adversity too are a divine appointment from that same God. So I encourage you, church, allow good theology to do its work in your life. On the day of suffering, stop, reflect, and know that God is in control. But it's even more than that, church. It's even more than the fact that God is in control, we're told, because he's in control of it, but he also has a purpose in it. Thomas Boston was a Scottish uh, pastor theologian. He lived from 1676 to 1732, and he was no stranger to suffering. Listen to some of this. During his childhood... Thomas Boston's father was imprisoned for holding fast to Puritan principles. And as a child, he would go to the prison and he would lay down next to the bars for long periods of time to keep his lonely, isolated father company. As an adult, he buried six of his ten children. And honestly, the the stories behind some of them are just heart-wrenching. He watched his wife fall into intense mental illness as she aged, and he served her and ministered to her to, to, to her final days. And he himself lived with severe pain and what he described as intense melancholy, which we would probably call depression today. But despite all of this life marked with intense adversity, he served the Lord and the church well. His works today make up 12 volumes, and one stands out as a true classic called The Crook in the Lot, The Sovereignty and Wisdom of God and the Afflictions of Men Displayed. Here it is. I I really commend it to you, church, if you want to do a deeper dive into God's sovereignty and our suffering. It has been very helpful for me. But in this book, he reflects on Ecclesiastes 7.13, who can make straight what God has made crooked. He, he beautifully preaches this idea that every person has a crook in their lot, meaning by crook, every human being has something crooked in their life story, a hardship, a difficulty that causes suffering in your life. That could be living with constant chronic pain. Maybe it's in the midst of a broken friendship or the lack of true friendship. Ryan isn't here, uh, but maybe you have a really hard boss that you deal with on a weekly basis. <laughs> and actually, Ryan's a great boss. I love him. Um, maybe, maybe you're dealing with a broken or struggling marriage right now, ongoing sin struggles. Maybe parenting isn't going how you expected it to go. 
And by the word lot, he just means your lot in life, the circumstances that make up your life story. And we all have a crooked life story. And this is by the providential design of God. Boston makes the case that we must see these crooks as from God truly to understand them. And because these crooks are truly from God, then they are meant to produce good in your life. What a way to turn that upside down, right? But how do they produce good in us? How does our suffering, how do our crooks produce good? Well, it comes down to how one responds to them. Do you grumble and complain all the days of your life that it's not the way that you want it to go? Or do you stop and consider the work of God? Our crooks are meant to drive us to our God, to remind us of our deep and desperate need for him, to remind us that this world truly isn't the way that we desire it to be. We all feel it in our core. The world is crooked, and our suffering is meant to refine us, church. It's meant to refine a sin-filled person into the image of the sinless Christ. Church, this process is painful, we can agree, but this process is necessary, and it comes from the hand of a good God. But still, our lives aren't solely made up of adversity. There's also prosperity, Solomon tells us. He says, in the days of prosperity, be joyful. But wisdom, wisdom helps us to keep things in reality check. The world is crooked and all is not well. Another Puritan, Charles Bridges, he comments on these, this idea of seasons of prosperity, and I think it's helpful. He says that seasons of prosperity, this is more wonderful when we consider it. When we remember that we have not deserved one moment of prosperity and that we have deserved far more than all the adversity that we have suffered. I believe that. And we continue in verse 14 where it says, God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that comes after him. See, wisdom, again, keeps us in check here because wisdom has limitations. It can guide us into living within the holiness of God. It can protect us from the consequences of foolishness. But wisdom cannot do what faith can do. What wisdom, considering if, if, we, if, if we could take all the wisdom of the world and, 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 and squeeze it into the mind of one man, he would still not know what tomorrow will bring. Man cannot find out anything that will come after him, Solomon tells us. God gives, God takes away, and God keeps us in the dark. But he does it with reason, we're told. We wake up one morning and have an expectation for our day. We make to-do lists and schedule things out. And then unexpectedly, we get that call and everything else takes a back seat. At the beginning of the year, we make resolutions and we have hopes and goals and dreams. And maybe you start the year with three kids without expecting to have a fourth. And by the end of the year, you have four kids by God's good providence. We're, we're having our fourth, but it was planned. <laughs> See, wisdom serves us well today. It serves us in the moment, though. And we can gain wisdom by looking at the past. We can gain wisdom by looking in God's word, but it will not tell us the future. The future, though, is fully in the hands of our God, and he alone knows what tomorrow will bring. Praise be to him who holds our future for our good, and he holds our future, our affliction, our prosperity for our good. Now, if we're unable to make straight what he has made crooked, how then are we to live, church? The preacher now instructs us to be careful with the traps that mankind creates for itself. And I'll provide three paths that I see Solomon um, bringing to light in his text. The way of the self-righteous, the way of the reprobate, and the way of the repentant. Three paths that we can consider. Let's read a larger portion of our, our text that's starting in verse 15. Solomon says, In my Havel life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourselves too wise. 
why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is a good thing that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. In Solomon's short life, he shares some of the crookedness that he observes. The righteous person dies early. The wicked person prospers and lives long. How frustrating. How seemingly backwards things seem. And we feel it. Christian children being shot in schools, being raised in in righteous homes and dying an early death. Meanwhile, wicked men and women profane the gospel of Christ and manipulate people using the name of Jesus so that they can grow rich. They live these long lives, and in their old age, they continue to build wicked kingdoms on earth. So, if the truly righteous could die young and unexpectedly, and the evil prosper, how should we think? How should we respond? Well, here, I believe, is the first of the three paths that the preacher gives us to consider, the path of the self-righteous. He says in verse 16, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourselves too wise. Why should you destroy yourselves? Do not be overly righteous, Solomon. Really? And that, when I think about this verse, I think about Solomon standing with the, the gathered Israelites and, and, the, and the temple priest all listening to the words of the wisest man alive. And he gets to this part where he says, don't be overly righteous and don't be too wise. And they kind of just like side eye each other like, where is he going with this man? <laughs> so what is it? Should we not pursue wisdom and righteousness, church? Well, of course, we do. We do pursue these things, but we must have a proper understanding of what righteousness is and how it is properly obtained, or else we will begin to see our good deeds that, were, that are done for God and grow and become self-righteous. In the Old Testament and also presented in the four Gospels, but also seen in our day-to-day church, there is this old belief system. It just sticks around religious people. It sticks to the church, unfortunately. And it's this idea that if one is exceptionally disciplined in their spiritual life, then they will have a long and easy and blessed life, free from drama, a long life, free from the stings of sin that curse the world. This is a type of prosperity theology, though, and it's harmful to us. It goes like this. If I can just be a better Christian, then my life would be better. The correlation between how good my life is is really correlated to how good of a Christian I am, right? If I pray more, if I go to church more, if I listen to more Christian radio, if I read more theology books, then I will earn more of God's favor and be blessed. I think we all fall into this trap of one way or another in our lives. But that blessedness that we hope to earn in our working is not what God necessarily considers blessing. Maybe what God considers blessing in our life looks vastly different than what we would consider blessing in our own lives. In addition to that, all of these practical practices to earn God's favor are outward things when true righteousness, we know, comes from a pure heart. It's not the outward actions that can be faked for a moment when someone's watching. See, we cannot fake having a pure heart. It's simply corrupt no matter how we talk or act in front of other people. I've seen this myself. One can be an expert on the Bible. He can know all of the languages, recite common, beautiful verses in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, yet their heart is far from God. One can do mighty works for God, but on the day of judgment, the Lord will look at them and say those frightening words, away from me, I never knew you. So what are we talking about here? Well, what I believe Solomon to be saying is that you can't rely on your own righteousness to save you because the truth is you cannot achieve the type of righteousness that leads to eternal life. The preacher makes a point to remind us below that we are fallen in this crooked world. Verses uh, 20 and 22 that we just read say, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say about you lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. At the end of the day, you are a sinner. We all are. We are all unrighteous. 
We have broken all the law of God. James 2.10 tells us if you've broken one law, you've broken them all. In other words, church, hear this, your righteousness in the end will not save you. Grow in righteousness, grow in righteousness, grow in righteousness. Then I will live long. I will live long in the land if I just only do the righteous things. Solomon says that's not how things work. You will die, maybe unexpectedly, maybe earlier than you thought, church. You will meet your maker. Then you must deal with the question, did you truly serve him or were you serving yourself on that side of heaven? Now, the second path that I believe people fall into is the path of the reprobate. Verse 17, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? This is the path of the reprobate who says in his heart, if the future is unknowable, then how can we truly know anything? What is truth? Let's live for what we think is best. And then they don't pursue God with their days. It's something akin to what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 6. The Romans considered that if, well, if God is glorified in saving me through my sin, then maybe if I continue in sin, God will receive more glory. Flawed thinking. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that God's grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Jesus is the perfect teacher and illustrator of these things. In In my opinion, and I hope it's yours as well, Jesus is the perfect preacher. And he shares a parable that demonstrates the foolishness of these two paths the self-righteous, and the reprobate. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus shares this well-known parable called the parable of the prodigal son. For the sake of time, I'll just paraphrase what Jesus says, but you can turn to Luke 15 uh, soon and and, and know the story well. It it will serve you well. The story goes something like this. There's a a younger brother, a younger son, who goes to his father and says, basically, I can't wait for you to die anymore. Can I just have my inheritance now? The father looks at his son and he gives it to him. He gives him half the share and the son takes it and he runs off with it. He goes to a, another land and he's prodigal with his inheritance. He lives uh, lavishly and spends it all like a fool. He's, he's broke. A famine, we're told, hits the land. He has no, no hope but to then become a servant himself and he starts to, to work at a farm tending pigs and Pigs in this culture are the lowest of the lows, so he's in a pretty bad position if he's working with pigs. And we're told that not only is he working with the pigs, but he's beginning to take their food because of how desolate his life has become. And then he has this realization, my father is still wealthy. In fact, as I recall, his servants were living much better than I'm living as a servant. What if I go back to my father and work as a servant for him? But, but what will I say to him? All right, this is what I'm going to say. Father, I have sinned against heaven and I sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you take me to be your servant? See, the servant feels the deep crook in his lots. Granted, it does seem like he has caused his own crook, and he has. But regardless, the crook is used for a purpose. The son is that path of the reprobate. He wickedly desires to live apart from his father and to waste what he has given on earth. He was overly wicked and he was overly foolish, as Solomon tells us, by not saving his money for the day that the famine would come. Then we're faced with the picture of the father. While the young son was still a long way off coming up the road, the father sees him. And we're told he has compassion on his son. And he leaves his home and he runs to his son and he embraces his pig-stained body and kisses his filthy, muddy face. He yells to his servant, go, get a new robe for my son. Go, get a ring for his finger. Get sandals for his feet. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. See, the father's love for the son was undeserved. Amen? This is a picture of that lovish, lavish grace that the father has for his son who returns home. But that's not the end of the story. There's another scene, another son that we're faced with here called the older son. 
Now, the older son has stayed home, and he's working in the field, and he hears this festivity that the father said, go get a fattened calf, butcher it, it's time to celebrate. My son's back. And as the son hears these festivities, and he comes and finds out what actually is going on, he hears, oh, my brother came back, and my dad's throwing a party for him? He gets angry, and he refuses to go to the party. The father realizes that his son never showed up, And again, the father leaves his home and goes out into the field to find and bring his son back home. He entreats his son, please come join the party. But this is where we find out why the older brother or the, the older brother is so angry. He says, Father, I don't get it. Haven't you seen me serve you so well all of this time? I show up to work every day. I do everything you tell me to do without grumbling and complaining. I have been an excellent son. I didn't take your stuff and wish you dead and leave, yet you never threw a party for me. But the father responds, the party is fitting because the son who was once lost is now found. The son in this picture, the older son, is the picture of the self-righteous path, the self-righteous person. He did all the work. He showed up at church, church, he showed up at work all, every, every time, but all the while his heart was far off. He didn't serve the father because it brought him joy. He served the father because he was expecting something in return. And in the end, his heart was found out. See, in this parable, Jesus was speaking to the religious rulers of his day who acted religiously before others. They dressed a certain way and prayed loudly so many people could hear them. But when the Son of God was just inches from them, they rejected him. They didn't really want God. They could have reached out and embraced him. What they really wanted was the praise of man. Now in this story, we see the younger brother return, but did he truly repent? We're not not really told. And we see the older brother be self-righteous and be addressed by the father, but did he repent? Well, again, we're not really told. But what is sure is that we must beware of both extremes in our lives. And trust me, we all fall into them periodically. Amen, church? And verse 18 then wraps up this section when it says that it is good that you should take hold of this. For from what, from that, um, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. And here we see that third path, the path of repentance. The one who fears God shall come out of both of them. This person who fears the Lord knows that wisdom serves a purpose, but it won't answer every question. In righteousness and piety are the proper ways to live in response to our living God, but righteousness is limited, and we have to be careful because we will never fully achieve it. Old Testament scholar Benjamin Shaw says this, and I think it's, it's really appropriate. He says, it requires a really wise man to recognize this twofold truth. That we must pursue righteousness while reckoning that it is not an attainable goal. It is only the truly wise man who can apprehend and adapt himself to the limits of wisdom. Again, Solomon is pointing out, he's saying, consider the works of God, church. He makes the way straight, he makes the way crooked, but he does so for our good. We need not try to fight against the wondrous works of our God or fatalistically despair and go our own way. Now, verses 25 through 29, which are the last portion of our sermon this morning, really begin a new section of thought on the problem of sin. But I think that we're able to tie this back into everything we've considered thus far. Let's read verses 25 and 26 together. I turned my heart to know and search out and seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken from her, or excuse me, taken by her. Again, Solomon keeps it real with the audience, right? We must assume that he is truthful when he tells us that he has sought out wisdom. He has sought out wickedness. He understands foolishness. And he's discovered something. Heed your ear to this wise man's words. He says he's found something more bitter 
than death itself. And that is the woman whose heart is a snare, whose hands are fetters or chains. It is the man who pleases God and escapes her. But the sinner is taken by her. Now, what are we to understand about this text? Does Solomon have a specific woman in mind? (laughs) Is he speaking of women in general? I don't don't think so. The scholars that I've read uh, agree that we should read this in light of Proverbs in the background. So turn to Proverbs chapter 9. I think it will be helpful because we're, we're seeing more and more of Solomon's wisdom put on display. Note uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. So the beginning of the chapter, we see a woman being described as wisdom. And down on verse 13, we see the, the, um, the woman of folly. Let's read that. The woman of folly, she is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and the bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he doesn't know that the dead are there, and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Here Solomon writes of woman folly. She's a metaphor of foolishness, of course, and she is out there ready to capture anyone that she can. She is a seductress, a prostitute that profits from your lustful failure. She is a thief of your joy, and she is a thief of your wisdom, and she distracts you from searching out wisdom and fearing God. We're told she is loud, she sits in your way, calling out to you. you. You will hear her on your way of life. She is seductive. She is visible. You will see her in your vision on the way that you go. Let him come in here. Come into my home. Lay on my bed. I will give him what he thinks he wants. But what is the brothel of this world under the sun, church? while it's the opposite of fearing the Lord. It is the pursuit of knowledge for self-gain. It is the pursuit of materialism, that it should give you a purpose and satisfy you. It is finding acceptance among the people of the world with the hope that it gives you the community that you truly desire between yourself and God. Church, take heed to the wisest who's ever lived. He has searched and he has found foolishness to be tempting. And living in the chains of foolishness is more bitter than death. But there is a way to escape her, he tells us, the one who lives on the path of repentance, the one who pleases God, escapes foolishness. Let's continue in verse 27 as we uh, go back to chapter 7 and conclude our portion of Scripture this morning. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another, I find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all of these I have not found. Okay, how is he going to handle this passage? Well, I think what's going on here is... Um, well, well, let me say in the negative, what I think is not going on here is that Solomon is not a misogynist. I don't think that's the case because we have so much of his writing that speaks the opposite. Consider Proverbs chapter 9 that we just read. The first half is a picture of women as wisdom, and he also pictures women as foolishness. So he's not trying to downplay womanhood. In fact, if you've ever read Proverbs 31, the woman of righteousness written by Solomon, you can't walk away thinking this man thinks lowly of women. women. Solomon, though, um, um, excuse me, uh, but the word, excuse me, but the word found here in verse 27 is key to understanding the text. The word found there really means figured out or comprehended by study. So what he is saying then, that with all of the insight that he has gained in his search for wisdom, he has not been able to figure out people. One man in a thousand, maybe he's figured out, but a woman he has not been able to understand. But even if he is speaking of wisdom here, we need to remember that Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, and he's using, therefore, poetic language. 
if he's talking about wisdom, then this is really what he's saying if you take a step back and look at this passage. What he's ultimately saying is that wisdom is so hard to find that of all the men I've interacted with, one in a thousand I've found to be wise, but I've not yet found a woman. Here in his poetic way, what he's really trying to say is that wisdom among people is rare. In fact, it's very rare. I don't think he's trying to insult women, or I also don't think he's trying to insult men. One in a thousand is wise. In fact, I think he's trying to state this. Humanity is crooked. And that this is not something that Solomon is rejoicing in. Which brings us to our final verse, 29. See this alone I found, that God made man upright. But they have sought out many schemes. God made man upright. He made man very good, we're told. But mankind sought out. A different path. Seeking out different schemes could be Solomon's nod to Adam and Eve in the garden. They lived and worked and dwelt with God, yet they sought out a scheme to be more wise. They wanted to be like God, but in a different way than being made in the image of God. So they succumbed to the tree of knowledge and good and evil, that, that understanding that more knowledge or wisdom will give me understanding. I don't, um, but does this contradict what Solomon says earlier, that, the, that um, it was God who made the world crooked? What I mean by this is saying that we can look at this verse and say, well, God didn't make the world crooked. He made it very good and upright. It's man who went and sought out a different scheme and messed everything up. So if it's really the responsibility of man who made the world crooked, then what do we do with the passage that Solomon says it's actually God's work that made the world crooked and you can't change it. Well, I don't think he's contradicting his earlier passage in verse 13. We know that man was God's image bearer. We know that at the end of creation, he saw it all and he deemed it to be very good. But consider this. Even in the very good Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, too, had a crook in their lot, even before they sinned. Again, a crook is something that God places in our life that causes a difficulty with a purpose. And that crook we know to be the serpent. That age, ancient dragon who seeks to tempt God's people from true obedience. God's sovereignty over the crook in your lot. He's sovereign over crooks in every person's lot. So consider the work of God. Because who can make straight what he has made crooked? So let's wrap up our time this morning by considering the work of God as Solomon commands for us. For we want to be wise, right, church? So back to Boston, Thomas Boston. This is what he says about the crook in your lot, church. As to the crook in your lot, God has made it. And it must continue while he will have it be so. Should you ply your utmost force to even it out and make it straight? Your attempt will be in vain. It will not change for all you can do. Only he who made it can mend it or make it straight. So I'm going to leave you with two points of encouragement, and they are quick. Two final points of encouragement. First, I want to ask you the same question that I asked you in the beginning of the sermon. Do you remember what I asked? If you had the power to make the world straight, If you had the power to make your crooked life straight, would you? Would you change God's will from eternity for your life? His perfect and sovereign will to lead you to a good end? The one who knows the beginning from the end and works all things for your good? Would you usurp his will for your life? How sweet it will be on that day in eternity when we hear the cheers and applause of those in heaven rejoicing as they watch the great plan of God unfold in our lives. He has made this plan for your good and his glory. Again, when we consider the work of God, then we see the purpose of a crooked world. And second, I want to encourage you to rejoice in the day of prosperity. It pleases God to stretch out his omnipotent hand and give you gifts of good seasons. But with that same omnipotent hand, he stretches out to do a work in your life, to draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. In times of suffering, 
which you may be in now or you may be facing soon, I, can, I, I encourage you to slow down and consider the work of God. See what he has done. These crooks have a purpose and no one can make them straight except himself. And he promises to make straight the crooked. John the Baptist in Luke 3 heralds the coming of our Savior. He prepares the path. He prepares the hearts of the world that a Savior is coming to fix the crooked world. He says in Luke 3, 3 through 6, this is from the words of John the Baptist, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, that being John the Baptist, now speaking of Christ, he says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And every crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The gospel of Jesus is a message about the redeeming work of God, making straight all things that are crooked for his people. We are among the people whom Solomon says, there is not one righteous, not one on earth who always does good and never sins. You know this about yourself, church. You have done wrong. You have sinned. I have sinned. And we have felt the crookedness of this world. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Consider the work of God. Stop. Take it in. You cannot change it. But you may one day find that the crook in your lot to be the sweetest of all the work in God's life, work of God in your life. To God be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what a, a difficult passage that you gave us this morning. What a beautiful lesson, Lord, that we can learn from it. I pray, Father, that if there's one thing we take away this morning to be encouraged by, is that we don't have a weak God who's helpless in all things. We have a strong and mighty God who knows the end as well as the beginning. And that same God, who is the author of all things, loves us like the father of the prodigal son. May we turn to him and always go home. May we walk the path of repentance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.